Well, I want to welcome those of you who are visiting with us, either for the first time um, or uh, those who have been uh, maybe here a couple of times. We are, uh, although we're working our way through the Ten Commandments, we're actually working our way through the book of Exodus. And we have paused at the Ten Commandments, and rather than just kind of do one sermon on them, um, what an opportunity to, to pause and to see what God says about these foundational truths. And so I want to encourage you this morning uh, to kind of uh, come with us and jump in where we're at and understand that these commandments are, are not given in isolation. Uh, they are given at the beginning of the forming of a nation, and they're foundational to, um, to Judaism and even into our Christianity uh, God has established these things uh, for us. And I, I love the song that we learned this morning that we sang uh, because it, it's a reminder that none of us can keep these Ten Commandments. That might come as a shock to you, but we can't. You can't do it. And you know, what, what do we do then? Well, this is where Christ and his mercy comes in, right? And, and so it's important to know that the law is there to show us our sin but Christ in his grace is there to redeem us from our sin. And the law is good because it shows us the need of a Savior. And um, so I just want to give that as a backdrop. This morning, I want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. We're going to read three sections of Scripture. And if you have your handout, it might be handy for you, um, but you can follow along with that, uh, or you can follow along in the Word there. But we're going to read Exodus 20. Verse 16, then we're going to jump to Matthew, where Jesus is basically speaking about this particular commandment. And then we're going to jump to Acts 5, where we see this illustrated, okay? So here we are, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And then the book of Acts, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Lord, we ask now for your will to be done in our church family this morning, that the ministry of the word would have its way in our hearts, 
And Lord, what we know not would you teach us. What we are not would you make us. And Lord, what we have not, Lord, would you give us. And allow me simply as your messenger this morning to be your mouthpiece so that we can be built up in the faith and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this morning I want to begin by highlighting an article that came out in the Detroit Free Press just a couple of weeks ago, December 14th in 2020. And it tells the story of a man by the name of Walter Forbes, who in 1982 was... uh, anticipating a, a life of, of um, uh, going to college and, and establishing um, a, a real estate development firm. Um, but his life would change quickly after one act of bravery in the context of a bar where he, he basically intervened in a bar fight. And one of the people the very next day sought him out and shot him. And for the next few months, he was in hospital, he was in recovery. And about a year later, maybe shy of a year later, the man who shot Forbes, his name was Dennis Hall, died in a fire at the man's apartment. A fire that appeared to be deliberately set. And and because of the bar conflict and the subsequent shooting, Forbes became the main suspect. And a woman by the name of uh, Anise Kennebrew came forward as an eyewitness identifying Forbes as one of three men who set the apartment on fire. Now, there are some discrepancies in her testimony, and the two other men um, were released because of some of those discrepancies, but something happened with Forbes that he was not released. There was, you know, there, there was uh, no, you might say, alibi, or there's no issue there that he would have the freedom. And so when this went to court, this is what the attorney, his, his defense attorney said. He says, the jury saw Forbes as guilty until he could prove himself innocent. He said, merely being arrested and charged suggests to the jury that something happened, even though they should be scrutinizing the evidence and presuming innocence. He continued, no jury wants to believe that a prosecutor went through the trouble of bringing someone to trial if they're truly innocent. Well, in 2017, some 35 years later, Kennebrew admitted that she had lied, that she never saw Forbes at the scene of the fire. Here's what she said. She said she had falsely implicated Mr. Forbes because she had been intimidated into doing so by two local men who knew her from around the neighborhood and who had threatened to harm her and her family if she did not implicate Mr. Forbes. Forbes, having been imprisoned for 37 years, was released on November 20th, 2020. And after being exonerated, here's what he said. Even though it took forever, I'm still grateful she did the right thing and that she did finally tell the truth. And his attorney would go on to say, a witness who knowingly lies under oath can be charged with perjury, but the statute of limitations for the crime is generally six years. So a perjury charge in this case can be dangerous and counterproductive. He would go on and say, we want people who lied to come forward. The community as a whole is harmed if lies remain hidden forever. Now, that last statement is powerful and is really critical. Let's boil this down then. Here is what we have in this story. A dead man, an innocent man, a false accusation, a false testimony, violent pressure on the one giving the false testimony, a ruined life, a man falsely imprisoned, a guilty conscience, exoneration, vindication. And you notice I'm not using a particular word there because there isn't justice. Because he's lost 37 years of his life. And in this world, that justice will not be realized. 
Now, as it turned out, what they found out, that this, uh, this fire apartment was actually due to an arson for insurance money scheme by the owner. And two of the people that helped him in another place, in another county, a couple of years later, it admitted to him talking about how he did it in this particular case. But still, for Forbes, justice was not served. Now, you might want to blame the system, but friends, there must be a system. <laughs> there has to be a system. And society must continue to work at refining the system where Lady Justice is truly serving the community, not just for the victims of the crimes, but for those who are falsely accused of them. You might blame the prosecution. Maybe, maybe they were working with the facts or distorting the facts. And I don't think that's the case. I think they're just working with the facts that they have. And when someone comes forward as a witness and seems like a credible witness, you take that at face value. You might do the homework, but I don't think you can blame the prosecution unless the prosecution was ignoring things that they should, uh, should not have ignored. Well, you might say, well, you blame the jury. They should have seen through this. Well, hindsight is always clear, isn't it? Yet it does force us to ask hard questions and to be willing to serve on juries so that we can bring clear thinking and careful analysis of evidence. I don't know about you, but at Christmas time, we always watch The Grinch. How many of you watch The Grinch? Right? And there's that one scene where he's in the post office and he's going, jury duty, jury duty, jury duty, as if jury duty is the worst thing in the world. But friends, hear this. If, if God's people are not part of that system, We've only got to blame ourselves. But I know you get a jury summons and you're like, oh. But guess what? It's part of your duty to society. It's part of your duty to community. And it's part of the process that keeps the system functioning rightly. Now, assuming that people are actually taking facts and processing things in the right way. So I just, a little plug there to say, when you get that jury duty summons, consider it part of the sovereignty of God in your life, where he may be calling you to do something and to interact with people that you would not normally interact with, and think of it as a gospel opportunity, not just because you're there in a courtroom, but you have jury that's sitting around you thinking and listening to your reasoning that is rooted in scripture, and you're concerned about a person who is, who is being put up for this particular crime. Well, you might blame the defendant. This often happens you know, for being in a bar. If he was in the bar, he wouldn't have broken up the fight, right? Well, we can go that way, but uh, friends, all those things are, are empty. And you can just see the injustice in all of this, can't you? The, the unjust disruption of a man's dreams to make a life. No graduation, no real estate firm, no freedom. Families brokenhearted because their loved one is, is put in jail, and the guilty party is remaining free. Now, friends, this is just one example among hundreds of thousands that have taken place throughout history where someone is accused, imprisoned, even executed because of false testimony. And that is what we find God, why we find God including in his ten words, which is what they are, what we know as the Ten Commandments, the following commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the, the, the proposition here, and the, the, the theme then that we want to we extrapolate out of that particular commandment and the implications throughout Scripture is this. The ninth commandment is a call for God's people to be committed to speak the truth for the sake of their fellow man. Let me say it again. The ninth commandment is a call for God's people to be committed to speak the truth for the sake of of their fellow man. Your neighbor needs you to speak the truth. Society functions rightly when you speak the truth. And God here is saying that his people, especially his people, should be people who are committed to the truth. 
Now, when a society rejects the ninth commandment, it will reflect what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 59, verses 14 through 15. Just listen to what it says there. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's really interesting. And, and, and what's, what's happening here is this, friends. Those who are willing to be bold and to speak the truth end up being turned on in this kind of a context. They become the prey. They become the ones who are pursued. They become the ones who are shamed, who are canceled, who are hounded like prey. That's what happens when a society rejects this ninth commandment. And friends, there's a lot of that going on right now. Now, isn't that what the Apostle Paul is referring to in Romans 1 when he says the following? The ungodly and unrighteous suppress the truth. That's verse 18. And then a little further down, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. And then a little further down, they, they shake their fists at God's truth. At the end, it says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is what happens when a society turns away from the ninth commandment. They reject God's truth and are committed to doing evil and approve of those who practice evil. And friends, it's in this context that God wants his people to obey this ninth commandment. In other words, when society is so cavalier with the truth and is inbred with lying, dishonesty, and deceitfulness, God calls us, his children, to say no to lying and instead to be committed to speaking the truth. Now, let me just recap big picture Ten Commandments here. Uh, we usually see them in two tables. Verse, uh, commandment 1 through 4 is, let me say, vertical, our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10 are horizontal. That's one of the ways of looking at it. Those are called the two tables of the law. And in fact, when, when Jesus is asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment, he gives both tables. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's referring then to these two uh, these two tables. We also, though, have, have looked at this, these Ten Commandments really in three sections, verses, or not verses, but Commandment 1 through 4 would be honoring God, Commandment 5, honoring parents, and Commandments 6 through 10, honoring mankind. So we're in this, this last section where the emphasis here is on your relationship with mankind in general, certainly flowing through that, might want to say, covenant community of Israel, but also beyond that. So the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, but even, even in that commandment, Jesus expands it to, to having a heart of hatred toward your fellow man. The seventh commandment is you shall not uh, commit adultery, and we found that adultery is a very broad word uh, and, and a word that encompasses then any sexual sin outside of God-ordained and approved marriage. And Jesus confronts the sexual lusts in our heart. The Eighth Commandment, you should not steal, we found there that the heart attitude that was lacking is trusting in God's providence. And now we come to the Ninth Commandment, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, and it's screaming at us to be faithful neighbors who are truthful at all times. So, this morning, I would like for us to consider this Ninth Commandment under three headings. And these are headings we've used before, I think. The commandment defined the commandment refined, and the commandment illustrated. And if you followed along with the reading, you'll see how these all kind of work together. So let's, first of all, consider the commandment defined. And, and I think the backdrop that we need to understand is just to remind us here that, that we cannot approach the Ten Commandments with this, this Americanized lens where independence and personal freedom are prioritized and idolized over the health and well-being of the community. 
We have to see these in a corporate sense, in a community sense, as a love, you shall love your neighbor sense, right? It's important that we do that. So there's going to be the specific issue that the commandment gives us, but then there's going to be the implications and the reflections or outgrowths of that um, as we move on here. So the first thing here we want to notice, I'm calling legal lips, legal lips. And we're emphasizing here what is being said in, in this verse, in Exodus 20 and verse, uh, verse 17 or 16, this, this whole idea of a false witness. So the place for us to begin is to recognize that this expression false witness is specific language for the courtroom. In other words, the Ninth Commandment specifically demands that no one in the Israelite community is to bear false testimony against another person in the context of a courtroom hearing. And the word neighbor, of course, isn't just talking about the person who happens to live next to you or a couple, you know, a couple of rows down. It's talking about any other person that is part of the community. So we must understand then that for a community to function well, there must be truth. Truth told in the courts, and truth in this context with the elders at the gates, where many of those issues and disputes were settled. Society must have a commitment to truth in order to function well. And of course, what we find then under this, this, this whole idea of this false testimony, as we, we look in Deuteronomy in particular, which fleshes out the Ten Commandments, in particular, we'll flesh out this one a little bit. There's three things that should be noted. First of all, there must be two or three witnesses in order for an accusation to be considered. And I would invite you to turn to Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. And what we find here is that there there's just has to be an assumption of innocence unless there are two or three witnesses. Let's just read it. Deuteronomy 19:15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, that's just, that's just giving some clarity here, but it's also giving some criteria. Secondly, the accuser must throw the first stone. Deuteronomy 17, 17. The hand of the, of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Friends, this is a safeguard. It's one thing to accuse someone. It's quite another thing to put someone to death and to cast that first stone. And, of course, you, you're hearing the words of Jesus, right, aren't you, in the, in the gospel. So there must be two or three witnesses. The accuser must throw the first stone. And here's the third thing. A false accuser was punished. A false witness was punished. If the allegations proved to be false, the accuser was punished. And that's Deuteronomy 19, 18 through 19. Listen to what it says. The judges shall inquire diligently and... If the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This false witness was considered to be evil that needed to be purged from the community. That's strong and powerful language. But friends, it stresses the importance and the essential presence of truthfulness in the legal system of that community, as well as uh, any time an accusation is brought forward in the context of church leadership. So these principles served as safeguards to protect the innocent from injustice. Now the prophet Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16, he is going to say this. There are these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Now, friends, as, as we're going through here and as, as you're hearing this, hopefully you're thinking to yourself, this makes a lot of sense. This is the kind of society that I would want to be in where truth is elevated 
where people cannot make accusations unless there are witnesses. And if you make a false accusation and you're found out, you will actually be held responsible. And the punishment will be the punishment that you tried to have happen to that person. These are all safeguards put in place. Now, what's interesting is that we also find the same language and principles mentioned in the New Testament, in particular, as it relates to an elder. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And friends, these principles are foundational to the principles that guide our justice system. Because where there is no truth, there can be no justice. See, justice isn't just a mob of people demanding something. Justice comes as a result of truth. No matter what side of the political aisle or wherever you're on, truth has to be the measurement that brings about justice. Now, there are four terrible effects of bearing false testimony. Number one, it injures the innocently accused, right? I mean, the person's been accused, they're innocent, and they are injured. And many times, they're injured for years. Their freedom's taken away, their dignity's taken away, and, and, and their reputation in the community has been, has been tarnished. Secondly... It hinders the administration of justice in that particular case. In other words, if someone is falsely accused and put in jail, then the real person who committed the crime is still out there. And justice actually has not been realized, and you've hindered the process of justice because you've, you've given false testimony. So it hinders the administration of justice in that particular case. Number three... It undermines public confidence in the judicial system, <laughs> right? When we don't see proper justice meted out to those who deserve it, the confidence and integrity of the judicial system is undermined. And four, it leads to a deeply troubled society as a whole. When society loses its confidence in the just and equal administration of justice through the court system, there will be big problems for that society. And friends, we're, we're seeing that bubble in our society. And unfortunately, we cannot ignore some of the truthfulness that's come out about injustice that has taken place through the years. And by this, I don't necessarily mean racial injustice. I'm just talking about the, the system at times where it's, we've got to get someone. We've just got to find someone to pin this on and move on. And the people that suffer are the ones that are found and used to bring about, might we say, a political end or to bring about that solution. At the heart, however, is the commitment to truth among all parties. That must be essential. So friends, this is, this is the primary focus of what God is saying in this commandment. As God's children, we are to be truthful people, especially in the area of the legal system. If we're called upon to be a witness in a trial, we are duty-bound to tell the truth, no matter how difficult or damaging it might be. That's our responsibility. So the only place where a person can truly bear a false witness against his neighbor is in the courtroom context. But as we've already seen, as we've looked through the other commandments commandments that for, forbid, they, they typically forbid, you might want to say, the most extreme form of that particular sin. So murder is the worst kind of hatred, right? Adultery is the most destructive kind of sexual sin, etc. And here we see that the ninth commandment presents for us the worst kind of lie. Just think about it, friends. One that condemns a man or a woman for a crime that he or she did not commit. I mean, that's a terrible place to be in. But the commandment isn't limited to just that one sin. It also embraces what we might consider to be the lesser forms of lying. Now, we know this, and we've known this as we've gone through the other commandments, because Scripture uh, in other places 
actually uses the table, uh, in particular the second table, um, as, as a means to communicate. And what the authors, the words the authors choose to use help us understand that the intent of the Ten Commandments is fleshed out in the New Testament in other ways also. So when in, you know, in the Old Testament, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. In the New Testament, it's sexual immorality. Well, here we have actually an, an Old Testament example in uh, Hosea chapter 4, verse 2. You can turn there or you can just listen. But here, Hosea is going down through the second table of the law. He says there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And my point there is to say that when Hosea is referring back to the second table of the law, the word he chooses here is not bearing false witness. He uses the word lying. Okay? So I'm trying to show you from Scripture how we can, we can actually extrapolate and say it's, it's broader than, than simply bearing false witness. It encompasses all forms of lying. So we move from the general then to the, uh, from the specific then to the general. And I'm going to list here a number of different ways that this plays out. So we talked about legal lips. Now we're going to talk just briefly about lying lips. Lying has become so commonplace in our society, in business, and even in the church. I mean, it's, it's New Year. Everyone is diet-minded, Right? I mean, we're, I don't know about you, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the COVID-10. I don't know. It used to be the freshman 15. Now it's the COVID-10. Um, but, you know, and so what, you get all these commercials now. If you're on your computer, on TV, and it's like, you know, and it's, there's always a pill. And it's like, well, which pill should I buy? Because they're all saying they do all these wonderful things. And when you find out, is most of them are doing what? Most of them are lying. And there's all little qualifiers and little red, little red letters at the bottom of the thing here that says, you know, we, we haven't actually given approval to all of these different things, right? It's just commonplace in our society. And unfortunately, friends, it's commonplace even in the church. So under these lying lips, I have three things, just briefly. There's big lies. I just thought, just looking back, ones that came to my mind, Bill Clinton, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. That was a pretty big lie, because clearly he did, Right? James W. Johnson, CEO of Reynolds, told a congressional committee, cigarette smoking is no more addictive than coffee, tea, or Twinkies. Now, I don't have a Twinkies addiction. I might have a coffee or tea addiction. But it's not like smoking. I can tell you that. Joseph Stalin, speaking to Western reporters, said... There is no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be, when he was responding to accusations about what we now know to be the forced hunger famine that deliberately starved between 7 to 10 million Ukrainian farmers. I mean, we're talking big lies. There's a whole bunch of big lies that we could come up with as, as examples. But we're living in a world where lies are commonplace, but they should not be commonplace among those whose lives have been radically changed by the gospel. So there's big lies. There's little lies. This week I read about a well-known college football coach who was offered the prestigious position to coach the Notre Dame football team. And just one day after he started his new role, a journalist began asking questions about his resume and one particular point on his resume where he claimed to have played football for the University of New Hampshire. It was just a small lie that he added to his resume to beef it up a little bit that came back to bite him. It cost him his job and it cost him his reputation. Big lies, little lies. Elastic lies. And I have two of them here. Flattery. Right? It, 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 gossip is spreading falsehoods behind a person's back, and we're going to get to that. But flattery is saying falsehoods to a person's face. I've heard some wise counsel about flattery. It says that flattery is like perfume. You sniff it, but you don't swallow it. Don't go home and try to swallow perfume. You'll... Or maybe you should, so you can get the point here. It smells good, but it tastes 
herald, but be careful with it. And flattery is almost always superficial, and it's ultimately seeking to promote the person who is giving the flattery. So it's flattery. Then there's exaggeration. We're going to spend a really long time on this one. Right? It's a joke. Okay. When the truth is exaggerated, we distort the truth. Right? The fish I caught was this big. I stood in line at the DMV for four hours. Actually, it was one and a half, but it felt like four hours, right? This is, this is the kind of way we use exaggeration. But sometimes we can, we can really use it and actually want people to think that's true. Pastor, that is the best sermon I've heard anyone preach. Well, then clearly you're not listening to any good preachers. But you see, this is all exaggeration, and it can also be flattery, but these are elastic lies. We just... You know, in, in, in the preaching world, we call it evangelistic elasticity. You just kind of stretch the truth to, to make it work for a sermon, right? It's like, you've got to be careful of that. I have to be careful of that. But in, in the world, when we interact with each other, we need to be people who are speaking the truth and not claiming something that isn't true. You think that somehow, you know, I mean, I'm, now I'm thinking in the, in the context of a pastor, you think somehow God's work and gospel is going to go out with more power because I've, I've somehow exaggerated the truth? No, it's, it's going to hinder it, right? As if I can do anything to hinder it. God's sovereign. He'll do what he wants. But the point is, I don't need to exaggerate. I just need to do what God wants me to do, and that is to speak the truth, right? Lying lips. Sec- uh, the third thing maybe on this list then, um, legal lips, lying lips, loose lips. And here we're talking about gossip. Gossip. Gossip is passing along a true report or rumor about someone when you don't have permission. It can be true, it can be false, but the thing is sometimes we think, well, it's true, therefore it's not gossip. No, it's still gossip even if it's true, but you don't have the permission, you don't have the freedom, you don't have the right to actually spread that information. So what you may know to be true you don't have permission to share, right? So, for example, you may know that someone is struggling with alcohol or that they're, they lost their job or that they're struggling with pornography, but you need to ask yourself, is it necessary for me to pass this information along? It may be true, but should I share it? And the problem is, friends, that people love secrets, and sometimes people love to have the secrets to share, right? And you must remember that it's wrong not just to gossip, but it's just as wrong to listen to gossip. And we might actually do a good job of not gossiping, but we may do a bad job of not listening to gossip. Because you've you know, you got you to think, where is this going? What is this person saying? Proverbs 18, verse 8 says this, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of of the body, Mm-mm-mm. right? That's the idea. That was good stuff. Can you give me a little bit more, right? So gossip is spreading untruths or truths about someone that you have no authority or business sharing with others, and it undermines their reputation. So friends, we must break the gossip chain. Proverbs 17, verse 9 says this, whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Now, the idea of covering an offense is, is not saying covering it up so no one knows about it. It's saying this is private. This is, this is personal. This is not something that needs to be spread about. You're protecting someone in love, biblically, rightly. This is not somehow misusing the covering, all right? But whoever covers an offense seeks love. You're loving someone by not gossiping. Now, one writer rightly reminds us, it would be uh, difficult to estimate how many friendships are broken, how many reputations are ruined, and the peace of how many homes destroyed through careless gossip, often indulged in for the lack of something better to do. In our shelter-at-home context, where we're running out of Netflix things to binge on, we might actually begin to be loose with our lips in this particular context. Begin to talk about things and, and share things that maybe we shouldn't. And so William Norris 
writing this poetry, I remember it from years ago, if your lips would keep from slips five things observed with care to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. It's helpful because it's mindful of the different ways that we can actually offend when we gossip, so loose lips. So legal lips, um, lying lips, loose lips, lethal lips. We're moving from gossip now to slander. Slander takes gossip one step further. It's a deliberate passing on of what is false. It seeks to undermine a person's reputation. And friends, reputations are important. The scripture says a good name is more desirable than riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. But one problem with slander and gossip is that it tries to steal this treasure, this gold, um, these riches. It undermines, it wants to strip it away. And when we engage in slander, we defame others and we seek to exalt ourselves. And slander, friends, is often stirred by hatred, jealousy, fear, selfishness. And friends, it is a serious sin. And that's why the Apostle Peter, in the context of encouraging his readers in 1 Peter 1.22, he says this, love one another deeply from the heart. Well, that's just saying what the second table is saying. But he goes on to charge them, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, which means there's a variety of ways this can happen. The Apostle Paul gives the following counsel to the Ephesian church, chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And by the way, the, 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 the tenses of the verbs here, the way this is constructed is saying, these things you don't think about. These just flow out of the heart. But, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. That takes work. That takes thought. These other things, they just flow out of hearts that are unrestrained. So we have lethal lips. And then finally, we have technical lips. I know, it doesn't begin with L. It ruins the whole thing. But I was actually debating about this, and I thought, you know, this is actually something that's come up, and it's worth at least identifying in the context of this, this big overarching umbrella of lying. Sometimes in our desire to defend ourselves, we can seek relief from the guilt of our lying lips through some form of technicality. Let me give you a couple of examples. Son, did you clean your room? Yes, Dad, I clean my room. And then the father goes in to inspect the room, and there's clothes on the floor. The bed isn't made. There's mugs and bowls and spoons and forks on the desk. And no, I'm not talking about Adam. It's okay. I know probably you're thinking that. But here's, here's the response. Son, you didn't clean your room. And the son says, well, you didn't see it before I cleaned it. It was far worse than what it is now. So technically, I clean my room. See, it's that technical thing that has become somewhat even in vogue today. I'm going to use the technicality to say, well, I actually wasn't lying. Or put it another way. Parents asking a daughter, did you do your homework? And the daughter says, well, yes, I did my homework. And then you find out the homework wasn't completed. In other words, she did the homework, but she didn't complete the homework. In other words, well, define what did means. Well, you know what the parent's asking. But technically speaking, you get where I'm going here with that, right? This is, this is part of the way that we function. Friend, that's all lying. And the ninth commandment is speaking to all of these, so certainly about bearing false witness, but it's speaking to this habit that society has, that we have, that our hearts have, to not speak the truth, to be deceptive, to fudge, to, to not be honest with people. So friends, that is the commandment defined. Now we want to move to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, we want to see the commandment refined. Here's Jesus, and this is his exposition of this, uh, this ninth commandment. He's seeking to refine the commandment by taking it deeper. He's taking it to the heart level. He is not saying that taking an oath is a bad thing. 
Jesus took oaths when he was in the upper room. He, he promised his disciples that. I'm never going to sit down with you and eat this supper until we're eating the marriage feast of the Lamb together. It was a pledge to his people that he was going to be faithful until he brought them to glory. But what Jesus is doing here is he's criticizing the Pharisees. And I'll just be really brief here. He's criticizing two things in particular. One of them is that, he, is that the Pharisees had encouraged this multiplication of oaths. That's why in the text here, he talks here about, um, he says, you know, you, you're swearing by uh, the throne of God, or you're swearing by Jerusalem, or you're, 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 you're swearing uh, by your head, right? So what you, what's going on here? Well, th th there was this habit then of saying, well, here's what I'm going to do for you, or here's the agreement, and I swear that I'm going to fulfill that based on the city of Jerusalem. Or based on my head. I'm not exactly sure what they were meaning by that, that I would lose my head if I didn't follow through. But they had a multiplication of oaths that became part of the culture of Judaism at that time, distorting then what, what the, this, this ninth commandment is all about. Secondly, the Pharisees seemed to be making loopholes. You could not go back on an oath that you made in the name of God. But if you swore on your head, that's a lesser oath and so you can go back on that. And so what, what is it that Jesus says? Well, he's not, he's not saying don't ever make oaths. His point is don't ever use God's name in an oath with subterfuge. And that's a word that simply means as a way to evade a rule or to escape a consequence. Let me put it a little bit differently here. He says always tell the truth. When you, you say yes because your heart character before God and because of your fellow men, you, what you mean, when you say yes, you mean what? Yes. When you say no because of the character in your heart, when you say no, you mean no. And here's, here's, here's the, the strong bullet point. We don't need to be adding any kind of oath to confirm the truthfulness of what we're saying. See, this is where oaths come from. Hey, Ed, I'm going to give you $100. And you know what? And if I don't give you $100, uh, I promise I'm going to do that on my mother's grave, right? What does my mother's grave have to do with it? Nothing. As if somehow that guarantees it. But what happens if I don't give you $100? So you go to my mother's grave and you tear it up? I don't know. But these are the things we do. And what happens is we're moving away from actually letting our yes be yes and our no being no. So our word must be our bond. People must expect that when we say yes, we actually mean yes. Now let's read verse 37. One more time, but with great care. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from what? Evil. What Jesus reveals is there's two categories of speech. Our speech either reflects the lordship of Christ in our lives or it reflects evil. If you have to add something to your yes for people to actually believe that you're going to follow through, then guess what? There's something more at issue with your character. You need to get to the place where your yes means yes and your no means no. So these are what I'm calling uh, truth in the heart. Secondly, there's attitudes of the heart. I, I want to kind of talk about now four attitudes of the heart that summarize the heart orientation necessary to be faithful and to uphold this ninth commandment. Number one, love. And, and I get this simply because this is what this, the, the second table is all about, right? You should love your neighbor as yourself. All of these are supposed to be carried out with a heart of love for your neighbor. So you have to ask yourself the question, in the words I'm about to speak, am I truly showing love to my neighbor? Love. Attitude of the heart. Second attitude of the heart. Loyalty. Loyalty. Now, it's not necessarily a biblical word, but I think the idea behind it is there. This is a loyalty both to God and to your community. 
That can be your spouse in the oneness of marriage. That can be your family community. It can be loyalty to your church family, locally, regionally, globally. And it can be a a loyalty that spreads to your neighbors and to your physical community in which you live. And we're not talking about blind loyalty, but a gospel or biblical loyalty that's willing to both speak the truth in love as well as restore the, rep, the, the repentant sinner. So, so to be loyal is when you have to speak the truth in love, you know what, you do it, and you do it in the way that honors God. Why? Because you care about those people. But that's an attitude of the heart that fleshes out in, in practice. Blind loyalty um, seeks loyalty no matter what, even if it's sinful. And that's certainly not what we're after here. So, love, loyalty. The third one, honesty. Honesty is a disposition of the heart that seeks to speak the truth in the right way at the appropriate time and with genuine care and concern. Let me say that again. Honesty is a disposition of the heart that seeks to speak the truth in the right way at the appropriate time and with genuine care and concern. It seeks fairness and weighs each situation with integrity. Now, more recently, people have tended to just blurt out what they're thinking or what's on their mind without regard for the content, the context, or the people to whom they're speaking. And after the damage is done, they say, well, I was just being honest. Now, friends, that's not honesty. That's actually um, what's happening there is you're being selfish and you're being hurtful under the mirage of honesty. God calls us to be careful in how we speak, to speak the truth in love, to be mindful, not just to blur it out because I was thinking it. So love, loyalty, honesty. Here's the fourth one, integrity. Now integrity obviously is very similar to honesty in many ways, but integrity is the heart attitude that seeks to rightly maintain a trustworthy reputation. Do you want to be a person of integrity? Do you want people to know you as a person who has integrity so that when they come to you with something, when they come to you with a prayer request, when they come to you with an issue, they come to you with a struggle, that in their mind they know that that you are going to be someone who is going to be trustworthy. You're someone who's going to be loving. You're going to seek their well-being. Of course, the opposite might be understood as being dishonest, unjust, self-serving, a hypocrite, right? Whereas a person with integrity is committed to truth and committed to interacting with that truth for the sake of of his neighbor. And friends, the, the list here is not exhaustive. I give you those to say, here are some responses to the failures that we have when it comes to seeking to keep the ninth commandment. We might add in the list of what Paul says in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What's the point of thinking about these things? Because it's through the thinking about these things that these things begin to then develop as priorities in the heart so that when you are interacting, they're, they're flowing with these as, as attitudes of the heart that fashion and shape how you think, how you behave, how you speak. So that's the commandment refined, just kind of just twisting it a little bit more and driving it more home. It's not just, well, did you speak truth in the court setting, but are you a person of integrity? Are you a person who is honest? Are you the kind of person who loves people? Are you the kind of person who's truly loyal? And now the commandment illustrated. And we come to a story that I think we, we know, we've, we've read before, we're always shocked when we come to it. It seems a little bit over the top, I think, for many of us, especially in our, in our context. Uh, and of course, that's the account of uh, the husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And it comes on the heels, friends, of a summary of what was happening with the newly established church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following, here we have the stage being set. Let me just read through this and make sure that we understand what's happening. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that, they, that any one of the things belonged to him, 
uh, was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So this is general kind of coming together as a community, which wasn't there before. We have to recognize this. This is the church being established. This is them coming together. This is them leaning on each other and, and helping one another. And then in verse 36, we find a specific example. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I mean, it's just amazing stuff here. And then in verse 1 of chapter 5, we find these words. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sold their property and instead of giving all of it, they held something back, but misrepresented themselves by seemingly giving everything to the apostles and ultimately for the needs of the church. Now, for, you know, if, we, if this happened today in the context of much of the church today, people would say, what's the big deal? They're still giving a huge chunk of change. Be thankful for what you're getting. We have a building campaign that needs money, and you're getting your feathers ruffled about only getting 90% of the proceeds from their home rather than 100%. But friends, God is more concerned about what is going on in our hearts, and that's been a theme as we've been studying these Ten Commandments, which we've already addressed. When it comes down to it, friends, this story isn't really about money at all. Money is simply the mechanism that reveals the sin in their hearts. It is the lying and misrepresentation that God is concerned about. And please understand this. Ananias and Sapphira were under no obligation to sell their property. And they were under no obligation to give their proceeds to the church. In fact, they did it willingly as stewards. I mean, that's, that's the context here. In fact, they could have given half of the proceeds and God would have accepted it. But it's the way that they gave it, and it's the, the misrepresentation of their giving that really is the issue. And so this is what Peter says to Ananias. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Though later on, he says, you have not lied to man but to God. Let me just summarize just three things from this whole story. It's important that we recognize, first of all, they had committed sin. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. It wasn't a miscalculation. Their sin wasn't stealing or covetousness, but lying and deception. Secondly, their sin came from an infected heart, a heart infected by the poison of Satan's deception. We know that by virtue of what Peter is saying here. Remember, he is the father of lies, a liar from the very beginning. And friends, ultimately, they sinned against God. That's the third thing. They sinned against Peter, certainly. They sinned against the community, yes. But that paled into com in comparison with the fact that their sin was waged against God. And here's the point. Lying and deception are both serious sins in God's eyes. Now, what happened to both of them? Well, at each encounter that they had with, uh, with Peter, um, first Ananias, then Sapphira three hours later, as soon as they were confronted and they answered, they dropped dead and they were dragged out. And the, the, the fourth thing here is, this, is this, how did this affect the church? It says in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, no kidding. I mean, in our eyes, it's like, it seems a little over the top. 
Now, just think about it, friends. Ananias and Sapphira were an active couple in the early church. Probably they shared food and fellowship with the people that were part of that church. They probably sang songs in worship of Christ, which is what the church did. They probably listened to the word of God being preached and likely knelt down in prayer with their fellow believers. But on this day, their hearts are exposed and they receive God's judgment. Now, friends, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? What happened to Ananias and Sapphira is a preview of the judgment to come. Now, friends, the people were afraid because they knew that their hearts were sinful too. (laughs) They were people who lied. They were people who deceived. They were people who gossiped and slandered and take the list down. If God killed people for the lie of misrepresentation, then they deserve to die too. It's not surprising that they were fearful. Now, friends, hear this. It is only by God's grace that we are not placed under God's judgment. But it's also a reminder of the incomprehensible weight of sin and judgment poured out on Christ on the cross to pay for our sins. God hasn't struck you and me dead because he has already exercised his wrath for your sin on the shoulders of Christ on the cross. Now hear this. If we are horrified by God's dealing with Ananias and Sapphira, then we should be horrified with the wrath poured out on Christ, his son. And we should be horrified that we are not so horrified by the cross as we should be. If we move in our hearts and minds to the Gospel of John, in particular chapter 1, what we find there is that John reveals that Jesus is the Word, full of grace and truth. And he says in chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it's the law that confronts, exposes, and condemns. It's Christ who brings truth and grace to restore us to him. And later, Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, your friends, you just see how how this this theme is, is weaving its way through Scripture and is arriving here at Christ. Yes, we sin. Yes, we fail with the ninth commandment, and we should we should recognize that. And the reality is we bring this to a close, friends, is not to ask the question, am I guilty of violating the ninth commandment to not bear false witness against my neighbor? Because you and I are guilty. We are guilty. Everyone here. So the question is twofold. Has, number one, has the truth of the gospel set you free? Friends, this is a call for conversion. It's a call to, to let go of the things that you're holding on to that give you hope and to trust fully in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. You are guilty, but Jesus takes your guilt and bears the judgment that you deserve. And friends, it is a weight of judgment. I mean, if Ananias and Sapphira are judged because of a misrepresentation lie... Think of all the sins you've committed. Has the truth of the gospel set you free? Oh, the blessedness of the blood of Christ that pays for our sin. Have you placed yourself under that grace? Friends, if you're here today, you may have been a regular attender, but maybe you've just been a part of the form of the church and actually haven't humbled yourself before the gospel reality of the truth, I would encourage you to do that. I want to plead with you. If you want to talk further, I'd love to do that with you. But secondly, are you living under the light of the gospel that calls you to live a life of love, loyalty, honesty, and integrity? So this is a call to submission, where Jesus is your new Lord, and master, 
And so he's directing how you should think, how you should behave, how you should speak. And we do that in light of the gospel, recognizing that my sin has been paid for, the judgment that I deserve has been put on Christ, so now I am free to live with him as my Lord and Savior. And he's using his word to show us the habits and patterns of our heart. He's revealing your sinfulness, my sinfulness, not to condemn you or condemn me, but to conform you and me to his image. So when we come to the Ten Commandments now as Christians, we look back and we read them. Yes, they should, in a sense, condemn us, but we're reminded ourselves, guess what? That condemnation was placed on Christ. This is there to expose the sinful habits that are in my heart, and it's a wonderful gift. It's a tutor to help me know how I can get to the place of growth in Christ and maturity. So the reality is, friends, we lie. And that's a natural sinful tendency. But Jesus is our Lord and Master, and he speaks into our hearts. And even today, he can use this time and the text that we've looked at to, to alert us to the sinfulness of our heart and to, to affect change so that we will glorify him with our lives. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Lord, we've, we've sought, Lord, to, to seek to understand this commandment. We know that... No nation, no community can function without truthfulness, Lord, certainly in its courts, but even truthfulness in, in relationships. But Lord, ultimately, the truthfulness that is most important is the truthfulness that we have before you, that we are honest about our sin. And Lord, we see the truth of, of your salvation through what you've done on the cross and how you've ushered us into new life. But Lord, that new life is not just antinomianism or just living how we want, Lord. It's, it's a new life lived under the guidance and direction of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to be mindful of what it is that you're doing and how you're, how you're guiding us and shaping us and molding us with your truth. Oh, Lord, you desire truth in the inward parts. You desire truth in our hearts. You desire that truth to, to, to have its way. And so, Lord, I ask even now as we are reflecting on the things that your word has revealed, that we would quiet our hearts, we would confess our sin. And, Lord, even as we, as we anticipate taking the, 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 the elements of this Lord's table, that we would do that with a seriousness, Lord, that considers these issues. Be thankful, Lord, for the, the pushback of the law to reveal our sin, but, Lord, the, the welcoming grasp of grace to remind us that we are your children we are, we are your family that we are yours and you are ours thank you Lord for your kindness to us in your precious name Amen